0: Welcome to the, this is now the third episode of the Revolution and Ideology Podcast. Um, I'm Nick Lee.
1: And I'm Jared Benson.
0: In this episode, we're going to be finishing up our discussion on human nature. We started that in the last episode where we discussed Thomas Hobbes, uh, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, our boy J.J. Um, We discussed their theories at length. We focused uh, most of our time on Rousseau's theory, so if you want to go back and catch up uh, now with us, you can do that in episode number two. Uh, Now we're going to discuss, fast forward a little bit, and talk about sort of modern anthropological and archaeological discussions about human nature and the sources of uh, inequality in society. If you remember from the last episode, the whole goal of this portion of our podcast is to try to... Uh, explore two main questions which are can stateless societies exist and uh, if so how would we get there and then we decided to start that conversation by exploring the roots of inequality uh, in human society so our jumping off point for this episode is really the fact that Rousseau's hypothesis comes to dominate the discourse surrounding the origins of inequality for so long Um, Just to sum up, Rousseau's thesis is that basically the agricultural revolution led to surplus, and then the controlling of that surplus led to inequality and stratification, civilization, etc., in human society. Today we're going to be discussing an article by David Graeber and David Wingrow, though I'll probably just refer to Graeber for simplicity's sake. Um, They actually have two works here. The first was the academic article published in 2015 that's titled Farewell to the Childhood of Man, Ritual, Seasonality, and the Origins of Inequality. And then they followed that up three years later uh, in 2018 with a web article titled How to Change the Course of Human History. We'll link to both of those epi- the articles in the show notes so you can read whichever one you'd like. But the quotes I'm going to go into here come from the web article, How to Change the Course of Human History, just because it's the most accessible and probably the most likely that uh, you guys will read. Uh, Also, as we mentioned in the previous episodes, our goal for this is we're really following along with the research that Jared and I are doing uh, in preparation for a class that we're going to be teaching this summer about stateless societies. So I'm trying to pick the most accessible readings that hopefully our students will actually do. Um, I doubt that, but at least we can hope and try. So
1: We're dreamers. We're dreamers. You
0: know, they're probably more likely to read the web article than they are the academic article. And there's so much overlap between the two. The web article is based on the academic article, so we're not going to lose a lot by just uh, focusing on that. So first, uh, they talk about how J.J. Rousseau's main hypothesis has dominated the discourse for so long. Um, and really the main basis of their article is to challenge that discourse and to challenge the fact that it's been so dominant. So uh, the first quote I have, Graeber says, Almost everyone knows this story in its broadest outlines. Since at least the days of John Jack Rousseau, it has framed what we think the overall shape and direction of human history to be. This is important because the narrative also defines our sense of political possibility. Most see civilization, hence inequality, as a tragic necessity. Some dream of returning to a past utopia of finding an industrial equivalent to primitive communism or even in extreme cases of destroying everything and going back to being foragers again. But no one challenges the basic structure of the story. There's a fundamental problem with this narrative. It isn't true. So he's saying most people start from the premise that the Rousseau, Rousseau's hypothesis is true and then seek to change society as a result. But he says the very starting off point is false, that the we need to question that narrative uh, itself. He continues Overwhelming evidence from archaeology, anthropology, and kindred disciplines is beginning to give us a fairly clear idea of what the last 40,000 years of human history really looked like. And in almost no way does it resemble the conventional narrative. Our species did not, in fact, spend most of its history in tiny bands, agriculture did not mark an irreversible threshold in social evolution. The first cities were often robustly egalitarian. Um, Then he goes on to talk about why Rousseau's agriculture hypothesis continued to dominate the discourse so much, and he takes a brief moment to bash Jared Diamond. Uh, I didn't really know before reading into this more how much David Graeber seems to hate Jared Diamond, but it's kind of entertaining. (laughs) It's all
1: about guns, germs, and steel.
0: He uh, destroys him quite a few times in this article. Um, He actually says one of the problems with Rousseau's hypothesis is the question itself, uh, the question, uh, what is the origin of social inequality? He says uh, simply framing the question this way means that we have to make a series of assumptions. First, that there is a thing called inequality, and second, that it is a problem. Third, there was a time when it did not exist. Uh, So he says the term inequality is itself a loaded term. Uh, Quote, Unlike terms such as capital or class power, the word equality is practically designed to lead to half-measures and compromise. One can imagine overthrowing capitalism or breaking the power of the state, but it is very difficult to imagine eliminating inequality. In fact, it's not obvious what doing so would even mean, since people are not at all the same and nobody would particularly want them to be. Inequality is a way of framing social problems appropriate to technocratic reformers, the kind of people who assume from the outset that any real vision of social transformation has long since been taken off the political table. It allows one to tinker with the numbers, argue about Gini coefficients and thresholds of dysfunction, readjust tax regimes or social welfare mechanisms, even shock the public with figures showing just how bad things have become. Can you imagine? 0.1% of the world's population controls over 50% of the wealth all without addressing any of the factors that people actually object to about such unequal social arrangements. For instance, that some managers some manage to turn their wealth into power over others, or that other people end up being told their needs are not important, and their lives have no intrinsic worth. The latter, we are supposed to believe, is just the inevitable effect of inequality, and inequality the inevitable result of living in any large, complex, urban, technologically sophisticated society. That is the real political message conveyed by endless invocations of an imaginary age of innocence before the invention of inequality. That if we want to get rid of such problems entirely, we'd have to somehow get rid of 99% of the Earth's population and go back to being tiny bands of foragers again. Otherwise, the best we can hope for is to adjust the size of the boot that will be stomping on our faces forever, or perhaps to wrangle a bit with more wiggle room in which some of us can at least temporarily duck out of its way. So what do you think about this argument that even the discussion of inequality is a fallacy in the beginning?
1: So Graeber has great points, and it did get me to, to rethink the way I in my individual classes and we in our, our, our teen talk classes like ideologies and isms approach this subject and the construction of a social pyramid. We I freely admit that that I tend to also gravitate towards uh, the the Rousseau, Viewpoint that it was the development of surplus that started this process, and now I'm even questioning the use of inequality, but certainly stratification and hierarchy. Um, and and you'll get to Graeber's other theories as we go through this, but in previewing some of them, I do think that Graeber makes some very good points, and there needs to be much more nuance in that narrative. But I, I, I don't feel compelled. Uh, to discuss, well, to even engage the idea that somehow, somewhere along the way, within the last, whatever, six to 10,000 years from the agricultural revolution, that there has not been a pretty clear trajectory. I think there has been, and I'm not sure he's even disputing that, but I want to get into the nuance later when, when we get into some of those other quotes. To speak directly to your question to me about inequality, I, I actually like the idea that he's questioning what does that mean? Does it mean, are we seeking uniformity? Are we seeking to all be automatons in one way, whether that's in a foraging, hunting, gathering society, or is it in a mass industrial society? Um, I think he's asking very good questions. I still don't know that the questions he's asking, or even in the examples that he's going to provide later, that we see a very clear deviation from the general narrative, or at least not verification or proof thereof. I, I think that It's important that we begin to ask these questions, though, in the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish, and even in the title of his article, um, the possibility of something else, I do like his optimism that it is not quote-unquote, guaranteed that this is our trajectory and this is the way it's going to be, that inequity or inequality for us to have this modern industrialized society with technological comforts and so on and so forth is going to naturally breed inequality. I do think there's opportunity for us to maintain at least certain levels of our lifestyle, whether that's in terms of comfort or security or resource extraction, whatever that might be, without necessarily adding in layers of haves and have-nots. Right? So I do like his optimism there. So it's not like a full-blown critique of Graeber, but I don't, I'm not so sure that we can kind of start throwing out the ideas of these philosophers that we talked about in the last episode.
0: So. so I interpret what he's saying as the problem with discussing inequality is that it's too narrow of a question because it's really, really easy for the elite – to put the focus of social change on inequality because it's impossible to address and no one really knows what it would be like, what it would mean to address that anyways. So it it basically by focusing on inequality itself and making that the target of social change, it sort of removes the power from the people to make any real kind of social change.
1: But I think if we look at it in, in terms of inequality, I like to focus not necessarily on inequality on how it exists, but on how it manifests. So in terms of opportunity. And I think... It is. I think he's being dismissive of this idea that we're not necessarily those of us that are drawing inequality. Uh, we're not that are critiquing inequality and its various manifestations. I think he's making a mistake by arguing that we don't actually know what that means. I think we do. I think we. It's opportunity. Now, if you have, if everyone has an equal opportunity and then chooses to squander that, so be it. But right now, we're starting with complete inequality and opportunity and I think that is a byproduct of this stratification and trajectory that we have been on since surplus. So at no point in looking at what Graeber had written in at least these two selections was I don't recall opportunity ever being actually addressed.
0: Okay. That's a much bigger conversation I think that maybe we can come back to but whether or not the goal is just equality of opportunity or not that is a that
1: is a much bigger bigger conversation that I don't know that we can address but I think at some point in this in this in this what we're doing here in discourse on this topic we're going to have to we're going to have to have that if we want to envision what a stateless society looks like is what does opportunity look like again a stateless society is going to, and Graeber actually addresses this later and you're going to get to it regarding like the beauty of the individual. We're not looking to create everybody like one size fits all molds of human beings. That's, that's an impossibility. People were born mm-hmm. and Rousseau talked about this physiologically different or psychologically different. We, not everybody is going to be the same, but everybody should be given the same opportunities from the get go. And again, from in my, this is my opinion. And based on the, the, the studies that we've done opportunity is where limitations have been placed.
0: I definitely won't disagree with that. Okay. But are we focused on, in creating this state... In creating a stateless society, are we focused on the opportunity or the outcome for every individual?
1: That's a great question. I mean, at this point, sitting here right this second, I think opportunity has to come first. Okay. I mean, it has to. It has to. If you can at least make the, 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 the playing field level... For all all participants, regardless of status, family status, hierarchy, lineage, race, gender, uh, sexuality, all of these other various layers that over, again, the course of history have been used uh, with derogating results against various populations. Um, I think that's where you have to start. And then once we see how that develops, we can then address
0: what outcome looks like. i mean, right. My hypothesis would be that if we had a- actual equality and opportunity for everyone, then the outcome would also be equal. I mean, it would have to be, right? I'd like to assume, because
1: alongside that equal opportunity, that means things like as, as basic as education would also then be equal, right? And, and these things that guide us all on our individual paths within our societies would then naturally gravitate towards everybody having the same opportunities, which would lead to equitable outcomes. Again, in theory, Mm -hmm. we have yet to really see this in history. Graeber's an anthropologist, and he draws upon, of course, archaeological studies, so they're drawing from from very different sources than I as a historian. I'm looking at everything that's been written down, and basically, to be blunt, most of what I've looked at since things have been written down were produced by societies that were already inequitable. Mm -hmm. For sure.
0: Okay, then he continues on to talk about the negative ramifications for continuing Rousseau's narrative. Uh, He takes some more time to bash Diamond, and he throws in Fukuyama here too. He says, for Diamond and Fukuyama, as for Rousseau some centuries earlier, what put an end to that equality everywhere and forever was the invention of agriculture and the higher population levels it sustained. Agriculture brought about a transition from bands to tribes, Accumulation of food surplus fed population growth, leading some tribes to develop into ranked societies known as chiefdoms. Large populations, diamond opines, can't function without leaders who make the decisions, executives who carry out the decisions, and bureaucrats who administer the decisions and law. Alas, for all of you readers who are anarchists and dream of living without any state government, those, who are, reasons, those are reasons why your dream is unrealistic. You'll have to find some tiny band or tribe willing to accept you, where no one is a stranger and where kings, presidents, and bureaucrats are unnecessary. That's Diamond, he's quoting. Graber continues, a dismal conclusion, not just for anarchists, but for anybody who ever wondered if there might be some viable alternative to the status quo. But the remarkable thing is that despite the smug tone, such pronouncements are not actually based on any kind of scientific evidence. There is no reason to believe that small scale groups are especially likely to be egalitarian, or that large ones must necessarily have kings, presidents, or bureaucracies. These are just prejudices stated as facts. What do you think about that? again i I love what he's trying to do here, and
1: instill a sense of optimism and positivity, and that there is a possibility for work to be done and not for there to be some sort of grandiose natural disaster or nuclear fallout or something along those lines for us to be able to to be better to really be better. I, I like what he's trying to do i'm I'm really hoping that there are better examples that he's going to be able to provide in time that kind of show that's not the case. So regarding, like, small bands, I would actually agree with him. I have studied small bands that were very, hierarch- they had hierarchy, they were stratified. Just because they were a small group did not mean that there was not inequity. As we begin to scale up, though, I have not, in my experience, seen a lot of examples of large Large city-states, large empires, large nation-states, those three main, or even kingdoms if we want to throw the Middle Ages in there, where there was not inequity. I've not seen a lot of examples of those. And even in the modern 20th century, where various Marxist governments were able to take hold and attempt to flatten stratification, uh, in many cases... It may have flattened it for much of the population, but there still remained to borrow from at this point Marx, a revolutionary vanguard that never actually withered away, and so strat- there was still what we would call, in its most basic sense, inequality among the entirety of the population, especially when we look at the large scale.
0: So I guess my critique of what you just said is that you just admitted that every society you've ever studied has been a nation state, a large city state, or a kingdom, etc. Yes, those by definition are all stratified.
1: Well, no. Even the even the even the ones before that, before we would get to that status. So, if we look at uh, uh, Arabian tribes before uh, before the arrival of the Prophet Muhammad, or something along those lines, they they had hierarchy, and those were small bands, and I would not call them states. However, conversely, if we look at many of the, especially on the east coast of the United States, indigenous societies before Europeans showed up, those were, in fact, most of them were not as small as we make them out to be. Those were moderately sized. Uh, to use the Iroquois, my favorite example, League of Peace and Power, some posit it was about twenty to 30,000 people and had established, at least in my view, my purview, a more equitable society at that that size. But I would still never qualify them as like a state, as what we would call
0: an actual state, right? I think all he's arguing is that many people, including Diamond and probably us up to this point, have just assumed that there is some tipping point that once you get to a certain size of population, inequality begins to manifest itself. I think that's what he's arguing. And he's against.
1: arguing that there is no there's no there is no exact population number that right. can, there's no quantifiable number that here, you get to fifty thousand inequity. Before that possibility for right. equitable. When that one
0: that fifty yeah, the fifty thousandth baby is born, boom. Right. Stratification. So I would agree yeah. with
1: him on that. And yet, like i said i'm still I still want to push back on this idea that you at least based on historical precedent that potentially and again, this is the optimism he's trying to throw in there and i I so appreciate it that potentially something as large as the Soviet Union's attempt, if done better, and maybe the revolutionary vanguard uh, or the intelligentsia was different, somehow it would have been more equitable I, I not it was too big
0: it was too big, although I have to argue like, that's not the point of a socialist society. It's not equity. It's dictatorship of the proletariat. That's the definition. And that's where the anarchists and the socialists part ways. Well, they do
1: part ways. But then, in th- again, depending on how we define proletariat, it, they defined it, of course, as soldiers, uh, 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 soldiers, peasants, um, and workers. right? And so that would have been the majority of the population at that time.
0: I mean, this is going to have to be its own episode eventually, but we're going to have to talk about socialism and how the goal isn't actually equity of any kind. It's in fact extreme stratification, but the group that's being oppressed is the bourgeoisie.
1: I wouldn't disagree with that, but I'm talking, I guess maybe I'm playing a numbers game here. In proportion, there would have been more equity among the vast
0: majority of living human beings. Don't disagree with that at all. In these attempts. For sure. But that's not the goal, right? But even
1: in that case, it didn't happen.
0: That's, that, I guess, yeah. what I'm saying. Yes. But I guess for the goal of a stateless society, it's not for equity for the majority of the population. It has to be, at least in our utopian vision right now, the equity for everyone, right? Well,
1: as we kind of go through this whole, like, this this thought exercise, does a state... We clearly want equity. But if we're going to, you know, flex our... our what, we could, what, what a stateless society could be, a stateless society does not necessarily imply...
0: Equity. I think we're probably getting semantics now of like, it definitely implies a lack of hierarchy, and can you have inequity without hierarchy or authority? I think it just implies no state. Okay, that's a much bigger conversation. It is. I don't give a shit about dismantling the state unless hierarchy goes along with it. Who cares about the state itself? The state's only one manifestation of... Authority in a society. Well, and this is where
1: we're going to begin to have to define what state is. Just as we were asking the question, was that Iroquoian League of Peace and Power? If we want it, could that be defined somehow? Could we manipulate a definition to qualify that as a state? Or the 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 small band Arabian Bedouin tribe? Could that be a state? Like, what is a state?
0: Yeah, I mean that's definitely going to be one of the next few episodes which
1: we're digging into in another course called 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 nation building which actually is is the idea of building a nation so that we can critique it but that that's a whole different project mm-hmm.
0: and, and, and we, we still it. haven't had the debate yet of whether or not a nation is equivalent to a state correct that's a different topic but okay let's continue with Graeber. he says even archaeologists and anthropologists are guilty in perpetuating the narrative of rousseau so he says quote Still, even when anthropologists and archaeologists try their hand at big picture narratives, they have an odd tendency to end up with some similarly minor variation on Rousseau. So the question I want to pose here for this quote is to each of us as individuals, we're both guilty of this as well. Why? Why do we as individuals perpetuate this narrative in our classrooms? Where do we even get it from? Because I had never read Rousseau before this. I read The Social Contract, but I had never read The uh, Discourse on Social Inequality until a week ago, but we still perpetuate this agriculture as the sort of end-all, be-all origin of inequality. I think I'm ready to abandon that. I don't think that you are.
1: Well, as we both would admit, we're more historical materialists, and as you see how humans in the material world have interacted, when we look at the evidence, and again, I'm freely admitting I'm only a historian, so I'm basically picking up on when writing begins, and, and as I just discussed, inequity already exists by the time we have writing.
0: But he Um, argues that it already exists well before we had agriculture. And
1: that's where I'm having a hard time – again, this is the bias, and I freely admit what I – I'm fully subjective here. The bias of my discipline dictates that how much are we really – able to understand from everything before writing we're kind of as individuals as individual anthropologists as individual archaeologists or even as individual historians we're going back and looking at these sources whatever they might be maybe they are ruins in in, in on the turkey and syria uh, turkey and syrian border right or maybe they are pot shards whatever they might be and we're making assumptions using our own lens based on the, the story we're trying to tell. And I would argue that archaeologists and anthropologists are just as guilty of this as historians. They're going into this with their own, again, subjective biases, seeking to tell a story. And as much as we want that to go away, it never fully does. So there are going to be archaeologists and anthropologists that look at things before history, and they're going to make certain assumptions regarding the agricultural revolution being the birth of, 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 of stratification and inequity. And then there's going to be some, uh, there's going to be the gravers of the world. that are going to go back and look at what they've found, look at, and he uses, I don't think he uses this example in his, in this article, but he does in others. I heard it on a podcast he did, Mohenjo-Daro. They're going to look at cities like that and immediately assume because of certain structures, because there's not a clear, like, Uh, 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 palace, things along those lines that there's not necessarily an equity there. Those are assumptions.
0: So you're just not willing to accept those yet?
1: Not yet, unless we have some sort of groundbreaking, some sort of magical Rosetta Stone magic document that shows a true... Why does it have to be a document,
0: though? Because you're discounting all of anthropology and archaeology right now.
1: I don't know that it has to be... Okay, maybe it doesn't have to be a document. You can call me out on that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but there has to be some sort of profound finding that indicates that wasn't the case. Like
0: and maybe But you know, okay, so pause there because he can he continues and he'll give us examples that he actually thinks are findings that demonstrate that. So we'll get to that in a second. I personally have I like I said, I never read Rousseau. My version of Rousseau's narrative came from Marx, honestly, and reading his various writings. And it wasn't until I actually read the discourse on social inequality from Rousseau that I realized how much Marx had jacked from Rousseau. And I was, like, astonished. Like, I was reading Rousseau and, like, just hearing Marx so much through there, talking about, like, the labor theory of value is, mm-hmm. like, it's there. You know, like, all yeah. of these things. He even talks about alienation later on, which I had no idea. I would only read Marx. I had never gone back that far to – so that's where my, my – version of this narrative had come from. Um but I mean there's
1: always more for us to learn. I mean like I said going into that like a historical materialist mindset when you're looking at what was produced before and what was produced after this this magical agricultural revolution which again all of us there is agreement on this the agricultural revolution or whatever we choose to call it the Neolithic revolution is not an overnight process. This is a thousands of years process. Regardless of where one stands on its impact on on inequity, it, it takes a long time. Regardless of where we stand, but what I want to I want to emphasize is clearly what is produced after gives us some sort of material material evidence, a lot more material evidence of inequity than anything else, right? The rise of the Old Kingdom in Egypt, the rise of the city-states of Mesopotamia, the rise of the Shang Dynasty in China, uh, the Aryan, uh, quote-unquote, migration or immigration from um, the Caucasus down into India, and at that point in time, Mohenjo-Daro is uh, magically abandoned. I don't think those two things are accidentally coincide, right? Right. Um, and then, of course, the birth of the caste system thereafter.
0: Um, but all using, Graeber's saying is that even referring to it as a revolution is a misnomer because, like you just said, it took thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. I'm
1: willing to accept that assertion of his for sure, that, that calling it a revolution, whereas, you know, in, in putting it in the same language as, like, what happened in France in 1789 or in Cuba in, in the mid 50s. Yes, that I'm actually willing to accept. That calling it a revolution maybe more so than like an evolution or something along those lines, I, I would agree with Graeber But how can
0: we even point to agriculture as the delineator if it took tens of thousands of years to actually result in inequality in large populations and civilizations?
1: So I think that's why some of the language, especially in anthropology, um, with the Natufian period that we were talking about, I don't know, two, three, four months ago – they're actually many of them are not even calling it the agriculture anymore. It's more Neolithic because it's right. more than just agriculture. so mm-hmm. you, everybody's right on this. It is more than just learning how to grow things and plot land and irrigate. it's more than this. it's domestication of animals, it's sedentism, it's all these other things that come with it. So it's not strictly agriculture. So if we need a change in language and terminology, and if that's what Graeber's suggesting here, I would agree a revolution's probably too much, and agriculture is not the sole reason for this,
0: okay. I do want to just rewind a second to read a brief quote from Rousseau because you brought up historical materialism, and I forgot to mention this last time, but he has a quote here. This is Rousseau now. He says, In proportion, as the human race grew more numerous, men's cares increased. The difference of soils, climates, and seasons must have introduced some differences into their many their manner of living. Barren years, long and sharp winters, scorching summers which parts the fruits of the earth, must have demanded a new industry. I literally have highlighted in here, in all of caps, materialism. Like he legit is talking about historical materialism in the 18th century.
1: Right. Humans learn from what they observe, and what they observe is the material world, although Neoplatonic theory might debate that. But regardless, I think we're all kind of in line on that one.
0: I just thought it was interesting that Rousseau was talking about materialism, obviously, well before Marx. Um, Then, fast-forwarding to Graeber again, Graeber takes a brief moment to relate all of these ideas to revolution, which is obviously clearly right up our alley, so I'm going to read this quote. He says, Marxist political parties quickly developed their own version of the story, fusing together Rousseau's state of nature and the Scottish Enlightenment ideas of developmental stages. The result was a formula for world history that began with original primitive communism— Overcome by the dawn of private property, but someday destined to return. We must conclude that revolutionaries, for all their visionary ideals, have not tended to be particularly imaginative, especially when it comes to linking past, present, and future. Everyone keeps telling me the same story. Everyone keeps telling the same story. It's probably no coincidence that today, the most vital and creative revolutionary movements at the dawn of this new millennium—the Zapatistas of Chiapas and the Kurds of Rojava—Rojava. Rojava? we'll go with it, being only the most obvious examples, are those that simultaneously root themselves in a deep traditional past. Instead of imagining some primordial utopia, they can draw on a more mixed and complicated narrative. Indeed, there seems to be a growing recognition in revolutionary circles that freedom, tradition, and the imagination have always and will always be entangled in ways we do not completely understand. It's about time the rest of us catch up and start to consider what non-biblical version of human history might be like.
1: I love that quote, and and this is where I'm in lockstep with with Graber. I think that he is absolutely correct. Our study of revolution, as we as we talked about in the very first episode, why we do what we, why we're doing this, has revealed to us that that revolutions have not been nearly as revolutionary as we like to make them out to be. They are merely seem to be reproducing society on this general trajectory with different language, different nomenclature, different right. There's still a hierarchy. There's still a stratification. There's still the pyramid structure that we like to 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 beat up on. So I would agree. They're not visionary. And then, of course, by referencing the Zapatistas, one of my favorite groups, um, which we will probably do, a, be since we are going to be teaching them in stateless societies, and I did some graduate research on uh, the construction of their iconography, we're definitely going to be doing an episode on, on the Zapatistas. So I don't really want to give away too much for that episode. But yes, I think that is that is a wonderful example of imagination and revolutionary thought. So I, I love what Graber has to say there.
0: But he's arguing here that the reason that they are so in his mind, successful compared to other revolutionary groups is that they still have a very rich link to their history and tradition, which I think we've argued in much of our work that part of the reason in the United States that there aren't significant revolutionary groups making significant revolutionary changes is because the past of this country and its revolutionary past specifically has been silenced.
1: I would agree with you on that. The revolutionary, again, the only revolutionary part of uh, to use the, to pick on the United States that is really usually outlined is the war for independence. And actually, most of its revolutionary parts are intentionally uh, muted uh, and they're left out of the narrative. Because again, in any in any education system, regardless of where it is in the world, but specific to the United States, a K through twelve system is not to is not intended to make uh, critical thinkers or revolutionaries or people that challenge authority. It's actually meant to do the opposite. It's meant to make subscribers. And you cannot make subscribers if you teach all of the different ways people resisted the system within your society, uh, especially from the get-go, right? So it's the same conversation we have regarding civil rights, why a Dr. King's methodology is usually revered higher in the education system than a uh, Black Panthers or a Stokely Carmichael or a Malcolm X, right? Like, that, it's obvious. Uh, I did it yesterday in, in a classroom. I asked. Who's heard of Emma Goldman, right? Who's heard of Alice Paul? So I mean I have I have I have people in that class that would identify as feminist, and here I am throwing out these names they've never heard of. And it's not their fault, it's that they've never even been introduced. Because those are revolutionaries and revolutionary thinkers. So yeah.
0: I mean it's evidenced by the fact that in our revolutions class, we teach the American War for Independence as a revolution, and just that simple fact has landed us in the national news. So it just proves how people are a, unaware of that history and B, so indoctrinated with this sort of innocent version of the war for independence that they can't deal with any alternative.
1: Right, and we're being recorded actually reading from the sources of the time and people, you know, losing their minds over this when we're re- we're, we're pulling our content from the John Adams and the Thomas Paines of the world. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even know what these guys were actually saying and not that we're in agreement with them on many other things as you'll find out, but yeah. it's important to understand that that, that – well, I mean that history is, and here here I actually have an interesting quote from another French philosopher who we recently uh, uh, just began reading as well for actually the different project of building a nation, um, but he has an interesting quote. This is Ernest Renan in his work, it's not even his work, it was uh, the text of a conference he delivered in 1882, it's called What is a Nation, and and going into history, this is important regarding the construction of, of identity and nationhood, he says, forgetting let me start again. Forgetting, I would even say, historical error is an essential factor in the creation of a nation, and it is for this reason that the progress of historical studies often poses a threat to nationality. Historical inquiry, in effect, throws light on the violent acts that have taken place at the origin of every political formation, even those that have been the most benevolent in their consequences. Unity is always brutally established. Um, and I think in contrast to what Graeber's saying about the Zapatistas, they don't forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes a lot of what they're doing so – or at least appear to be so novel and imaginative. At, at least that's what I'm picking up from what Graeber saying and, and in contrast to what Renan is saying here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fully agree. And in comparison too, not necessarily mm-hmm. in contrast. Yeah.
0: So then Graeber continues and basically starts getting into what the modern research suggests regarding the origins of social inequality. He says – um. Well, he says, first off, we know nothing of human history prior to the upper Paleolithic period, which begins around 45,000 years ago. Uh, Quote, prehistorians have pointed out for some decades to little apparent effect that the human groups inhabiting these environments had nothing in common with those blissfully simple egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers still routinely imagined to be our remote ancestors. The continues and starts to explain how this contradicts uh, Rousseau's agricultural hypothesis. He says that it demonstrates there was inequality long before agriculture and sedentary sites. And the first piece of evidence he uses is evidence of rich burial sites. So he says, quote, To begin with, there is an undisputed existence of rich burials extending back in time to the depths of the Ice Age. Some of these, such as the 25,000-year-old grave from Sungir, east of Moscow, have been known for many decades and are justly famous. For example, dug into the permafrost beneath the Paleolithic settlement at Sungir was the grave of a middle-aged man buried, as Fernandez Armesto observes, with stunning signs of honor, bracelets of polished mammoth, ivory, uh diadem or cap of fox teeth and nearly three thousand laboriously carved and polished ivory beads. And a few feet away in an identical grave lay two children of about ten and thirteen years respectively, adorned with comparable grave gifts, including, in this case in the case of the elder, some five thousand beads as fine as the adults, although slightly smaller, and a massive lance carved from ivory. Comparably rich burials are now are by now attested from the upper Paleolithic rock shelters and open-air settlements across across much of Western Eurasia, from the Don to the Dordogne. I don't know how to pronounce the last word. So what do you think about that? So
1: I really liked when I was reading this that he now had some good tangible examples based on the archaeological evidence. Clearly, if you are going to bury somebody and go to this much trouble of adorning them um, with what at the time would be perceived, not just wealth in terms of its material value, but but he uses the word laboriously, right? Like, it took a lot of man hours or woman hours to produce these things that were buried. Clearly, these people were, quote-unquote, what we would call special or had some sort of status. Does that status or speciality contrast so much about what either Hobbes or Rousseau was saying at the time? I don't know. I would not disagree that it does show that these people were, for whatever reason special in their society and warranted this special treatment. And and if that means inequality, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a leap. I don't know if it's a giant leap, though. So I'm, I'm not in full disagreement. I think he has a great example here. I don't know that we can then, using these, because he has about three other examples, if I recall correctly, I don't know that we can use these three examples to challenge other examples of more egalitarian societies, or maybe we don't have enough of those examples. One of the things that we do with this and we're all guilty of it, regardless of our discipline at this point, from history to anthropology um, to archaeology and when we're talking about this idea of human nature and I'm guilty of this, is we'll try and take these findings of the ancient past where we don't have these people around anymore, but then look at people that we actually did experience when we began writing things down. Again, Native Americans or Aboriginals in Australia or the Maori in New Zealand or whoever. We'll look at their more quote-unquote, I hate this word, simple lifestyle and then assume that a lot of that can be juxtaposed upon the past. And again, I'm super guilty of this. Like I said, I I keep using maybe the Iroquois League of Peace and Power as an example or whatever. We're all guilty of this. And I think in this way, there's also some guilt on his part as well, is that we're making these assumptions based on only examples, on small examples. I don't think there's enough—so to be blunt, for empires, if we were talking about empires, we have lots of examples. And so there is a very clear trajectory of how a Chinese dynasty, a Roman Empire, a Persian Empire, an Assyrian kingdom, whatever, there, there was a, a clear trajectory that they had a lot in common in the way they, they founded themselves and then moved forward. These are much more sporadic. So on this front, I would argue we we have to wait a little bit more for more archaeological discoveries, which will be coming,
0: right? We're getting better at this. Although as a social scientist, I will completely disagree with you and say that if Rousseau is presenting a hypothesis that is inequality, the origins of inequality are agriculture, to falsify that hypothesis, you would only need to provide one piece of evidence that would demonstrate that inequality existed prior to agriculture, which Graeber does Undeniably, But as I think we've
1: already discussed, I'm not sure that anyone – okay, if we're disagreeing with Rousseau, perhaps, but I don't think anyone today that follows a uh, – JJ, to, to use his, uh, to his fun name, I don't think anyone really believes it's solely agriculture. At this point. But Graeber's
0: saying they do, and that's the, that's the entire problem that he's attacking. I've not run across a lot of those. So
1: even the other anthropologists we've used to actually justify this when we've taught it in class before.
0: I mean, yes, it's much more nuanced than that, but still, the biggest thing is agriculture. I
1: think it's the time period we're talking about. Yes, that between, again, that magic time period, 12 to 6,000
0: BCE, whatever it is. The well, okay, things- but he's saying here this is 25,000 years old.
1: Right. And then we've got other things that also show, right, the matrilineal society with the Venus it, it, that's 30,000 years old or whatever it is in, in, that was found uh, in Germany mm-hmm. or the Chauvet paintings or whatever those might be. Now, what they mean, we're all looking at them, looking at these pieces of evidence and applying, honestly, our narrative, our purview to that. So so when you're I...
0: arguing that the rich burial site, we're also applying our perspective to that, that Correct. that doesn't actually necessarily mean inequality. I,
1: I, what I am admitting is that it shows that these people were special and for whatever reason deserved special
0: treatment. But that's inequality.
1: Okay. I mean if that's how we're going to define – you are – I'm relying on you now. You're the social scientist here. You're the sociologist. So if that's how we're going to define inequality – I mean if you want to use okay like
0: they're special as a euphemism for inequality, that's fine. But it's still inequality. Okay. Like one person can't be special if another person I'm okay. isn't I'm not okay. special. I will I
1: will acquiesce
0: on this point. <laughs> Okay, um, then he provides a second piece of evidence, which is the evidence of monumental architecture dating uh, before agriculture. So he says, no less intriguing is the sporadic but compelling evidence for the monumental architecture, stretching back to the last glacial maximum. The idea that one could measure monumentality in absolute terms is, of course, as silly as the idea of quantifying ice age expenditure in dollar and cents. It is a relative concept, which makes sense only within the particular scale of values and prior experiences. The Pleistocene has no direct equivalence in scale to the pyramids of Giza or the Roman Colosseum, but it does have buildings that, by the standards of the time, could only have been considered public works, implying sophisticated design and the coordination of labor on an impressive scale. So what do you think about that? really have much commentary, that these things
1: have been found, right? Uh, like I said, we found these things. They exist. Monumentality. Monuments predate... There are monuments that predate the pyramids and the ziggurat at Ur and great walls and so on and so forth, so I don't I don't know that I have any, any disagreement that these... And these monuments obviously had to be public works, right? Multiple people had to participate to produce these. We found these. I don't have any disagreement. I don't know what that... What he's getting at in
0: what... Well, I think he's suggesting that that indicates... The existence of stratification.
1: Stratification under some sort of supernatural power, I would agree with that. Many of them, what we appear to be pointing to some sort of origin story, which again, I don't think anyone spends enough time talking about the actual stories that motivate this, but that's what we do in our class, so I guess we fill in that blank. But, yeah, yes, there is definitely inequity. At this point in time, these fancy things that we talk about in in, uh, – we will be talking about more maybe in future podcasts or we definitely talk about in the classroom. Ethically constitutive stories, borrowing from the political scientist Rogers M. Smith. Get my citation in there. Um. That They already existed. They Those predate inequity for sure. And if those stories, whatever those stories are, these creation narratives, these origins, motivated paying homage to some sort of creator spirit or uh, with the crazy guy on the History Channel, some ancient alien, fine, whatever it might be, so be it. So I guess in that case there is clearly a stratification, some sort of creative, creative essence, and
0: then below that humanity, that I would agree with. Yeah, but I have to call you out right now because you just discounted all of anthropology and archaeology because no written documents existed, but then you just definitively said that ethically constituted stories have been around since the dawn of man. Where's the proof? The proof of the ethically constituted stories? Yeah, you can't stories? have it both ways. The oral transmission. That doesn't count. According to you, the historian, that requires documents for evidence of everything. I
1: already said that documents was the incorrect word for me to use right then. <laughs> and a lot of these ethically constitutive stories end up carved, right? in on in the turkey turkish ruins. yeah but according
0: to you there's no proof of them existing until that carving takes place
1: i don't believe i ever said that so what we know is that stories predate writing by a by
0: forever how do you know
1: because we talked about it in the last episode the minute we began to communicate we started telling stories now those stories may have started super how simplistic. do we know there is any language though
0: we have no idea are you, just being, are you just being this way for the sake of being this way? Yeah, this obviously, but
1: yeah. Because we already had this discussion. So when you, what was it? What was the example we used in the last episode? Something along the lines of, I want to organize a hunt for this gazelle. Even if it's not like what we would call a traditional story. It's not the epic of Gilgamesh or the Iliad or the Odyssey or some bullshit Avengers movie. There's still a communication and a, and a narrative, a way, a plan with a thesis. The thesis being, this is how we will kill the gazelle. That existed.
0: But I can, like, pick up my spear and point at a gazelle, and that's different than me telling you an ethically constitutive story.
1: I think it starts there, though. I think it starts with that. And okay. the stories the stories carry on from there. And eventually we get to a point where these stories, and Rousseau says it as well, become so com- they become much more complex. As more and more humans gather, and we learn more, and we want to know more. We're asking these questions, right? Just like we say in class. There's two questions that we think, we think, I'm not saying definitively. Humans have been asking for a really long time. We don't know how long, but a really long time. Why am I here? And what happens when I die, slash, in the future? Again, we don't know when they started asking that question. We don't even know if other species asked that question. They might.
0: I'm not willing to say they don't. But that's when we start developing these stories. Now that I'm thinking this through, Like that is such an assumption of our present. It's presentism because we ask those questions. Were men 25,000 years ago asking that question? I don't ask those questions. Yes, you do. Why am I here? I mean, I guess I
1: asked that question. Like, what, what, what's the point of, of being here doing this I mean, project? we as
0: in, like, modern humans. Oh.
1: I mean, I guess, we. Like, here's the thing. I've already prefaced this. Yes, I am part of the process. <laughs> I am part of the subjective biased lens where I am fully socialized and conditioned into thinking a certain way and looking at things through a certain lens. So, yeah, I'm willing to admit that. I'm not above this. I'm not, you know, if if anyone is above this, it's, I don't know, it's our great creative spiritual essence. I don't know what that is. It's Lord Krishna.
0: Okay, then Graver goes and tells us exactly what we should make of this new evidence, the rich burial sites and the monumental architecture. He says, quote, What then are we to make of all this? One scholarly response has been to abandon the idea of egalitarian golden age entirely and conclude that rational self-interest and accumulation of power are the enduring forces behind human social development. But this doesn't really work either. Evidence for institutional inequality in Ice Age societies, whether in the form of grand burials or monumental buildings, is nothing if not sporadic. Burials appear literally centuries and often hundreds of kilometers apart. Even if we put this down to the patchiness of the evidence, we still have to ask why the evidence is so patchy. After all, if any of these Ice Age princes had behaved anything like, say, Bronze Age princes, we'd be finding fortifications, storehouses, palaces, all the usual trappings of emergent states. Instead, over tens of thousands of years, we see monuments and magnificent burials, but little else to indicate the growth of ranked societies.
1: So, I mean, that, that just kind of coincides with the idea that the evidence is patchy and it's separated mm-hmm. by large geographic zones and centuries. So, I mean, like I said, the trajectory is much less clear than if we were picking apart empire building.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, then he goes on to say, like, this is his main thesis. Quote, a wider look at the archaeological evidence suggests a key to resolving this the dilemma. It lies in the seasonal rhythms of prehistoric social life. Most of the Paleolithic sites discussed so far are associated with with evidence for annual or biennial periods of aggregation, linked to the migrations of game herds, whether woolly mammoth, steppe bison, reindeer, or gazelle, as well as cyclical fish runs and nut harvests. At less favorable times of year, at least, for, at least some of our Ice Age ancestors no doubt really did live and forage in tiny bands. But there is overwhelming evidence to show that at others they congregated, feasting on a superabundance of wild resources, engaging in complex rituals, ambitious artistic enterprises, and trading minerals, marine shells, and animal pelts over striking distances. Such seasonal patterns of social life endured long after the invention of agriculture. It is supposed to have changed everything. New evidence shows that alternations of this kind may be the key to understanding the famous Neolithic monuments of the Salisbury Plain, and not just in terms of calendric symbolism. And I think
1: that kind of, I mean, honestly, while it, it, he attempts to challenge the agricultural revolution narrative, he actually reinforces the surplus narrative, in my opinion, a little bit there. And that's what I was thinking as I was going through that, that yes, okay, so fine. The surplus existed in some times, some ways before the agricultural revolution, again, during migratory periods or when there is a giant hunt of mammoth or bison or whatever it might be. That's still a resource that becomes a surplus and ritualization, a little bit of stratification, maybe some needed leadership. That's when that rises, but it was still based on the material resource being
0: more plentiful at that time and the gathering of a larger population. Okay. He says this is important. Uh, Quote, why are these seasonal variations important? Because they reveal that from the very beginning, human beings were self-consciously experimenting with different social possibilities. And that's his main point throughout this work. Uh, He provides three examples, which, yeah, we're going to have to go into because this is key. The first one is the Inuit, he says. Anthropologists describe societies of this sort as possessing a double morphology. Marcel Mauss, writing in the early 20th century, observed that the circumpolar Inuit and likewise many other species have two social structures, one in the summer and one in the winter, and that in parallel they have two systems of law and religion. In the summer months, Inuit dispersed into small patriarchal bands in pursuit of freshwater fish, caribou, and reindeer, each under the authority of a single mayor leader. Property was possessively marked and patriarchs exercised coercive, sometimes even tyrannical power over their kin. But in the long winter months, when seals and walrus flocked to the Arctic shores, another social structure entirely took over as Inuit gathered together to build, build great meeting houses Of wood, whale rib, and stone. With them, the virtues of equality, altruism, and collective life prevailed. Wealth was shared. Husbands and wives exchanged partners under the aegis of Sedna, the goddess of the seals. The second example are the hunter gatherers. uh Let's stop. Okay. When I was going through this, this
1: was actually my favorite example to almost prove his point. Mm-hmm. And fly in the face of some of mine, and Rousseau's, yeah, and Hobbes, and so on and so on. I loved this one because it actually showed, and it was the opposite of what I just commented on, that it is during the times of surplus that they reach the most egalitarian point of uh, point of their civilization. And it is when things become a little bit leaner and they break off into small bands that they become much more, Their stratification in these small bands, and they are clearly led by a patriarch, a chief, whatever we want to call them, so I actually thought this was a great example, and I don't necessarily – I'm not going to disagree with it or anything along those lines. I just thought it's important to point out in critiquing my own way of thinking about the world, this is a good example that challenges challenges me.
0: So I thought that was a good one. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. pull that out of there too. Okay, the next he says, quote, another example were the indigenous hunter-gatherers of Canada's northwest, northwest coast, for whom winter, not summer, was the time when society crystallized into the most unequal forms, and spectacularly so. Plink-built palaces sprang to life along the coastlines of British Columbia, with hereditary nobles holding court over commoners and slaves, and hosting the great banquets known as Potlatch. Yet these aristocratic courts broke apart for the summer work of the fishing season, reverting to smaller clan formations, still ranked, but with an entirely different and less formal structure. In this case, people actually adopted different names in summer and winter, literally becoming someone else depending on the time of year.
1: So, I don't know if you've read the quote yet or if you're going to get to the quote, but this is his idea that of of experimenting with different social structures, predating the agricultural revolution, he uses the word oscillating, that they oscillate between egalitarianism, and stratification or hierarchy. Um, and I think this is another good example that actually does prove his point. And, and, and I, when you're done with the other examples, I even have a couple that might show right that there is, even pre-agricultural revolution, societies or civilizations that were trying on different things and based on whether there was surplus or not, they would of course uh, the material world would dictate that they would change their social and political functions or, or, or systems.
0: Okay, then he actually provides your favorite go-to. So he says, quote, Perhaps the most striking in terms of political reversals were the seasonal practices of 19th century tribal confederacies on the American Great Plains. Sometime or one-time farmers who had adopted a nomadic hunting life. In the late summer, small and highly mobile bands of Cheyenne and Lakota would congregate in large settlements to make logistical preparations for the buffalo hunt. At this most sensitive time of year, They appointed a police force that exercised full coercive powers, including the right to imprison, whip, or fine any offenders who endangered the proceedings. Yet, as the anthropologist Robert Lowy observed, this unequivocal authoritarianism operated on a strictly seasonal and temporary basis, giving way to more anarchic forms of organization once the hunting season and the collective rituals that followed were complete.
1: So this example is another good one that shows in this case, the attempted moment of surplus to acquire that surplus required a lot of strategy. So much strategy that there needed to be clear, clear leadership, right? A rank and file situation to ensure that the hunt would be as successful successful as possible. So I think that's actually another good example. Now, one thing that many of us are also again, very guilty of is again, making these macro associations based on a couple of examples. So, the Plains indigenous people were, are not necessarily my favorite example to talk about, like, matrilineal societies and more egalitarianism. It's usually either the West Coast or the East Coast woodland indigenous people. The other thing that's inter- interesting and we use this example in the ideology class is when we go through even the Cheyenne creation story, great medicine makes a beautiful world that actually reveals the oscillation right there between like different lifestyles, which would naturally mean that different systems were tried on. It actually shows somewhat of a matrilineal beginning, but by the time they are full blown hunters and much of it they, they, we see a, a, a switch to patriarchy, that story, it is an oral tradition then later written down in whatever the late 18th, 19th, 20th century. I don't remember when it was actually written down by, by, uh, white translators essentially what we see there though is a very long rich history where the Cheyenne themselves are also admitting that because of the material circumstances right and they don't use this language but like the glaciers uh, receding and then like all of that changed the way they lived and so uh for our listeners out there if you ever want to to read a great story that shows a very long rich history but it's only three or four pages and it's done in in metaphor and whatnot that's a wonderful story that shows this oscillation it's called great medicine makes a beautiful Country
0: And it is a Cheyenne creation story. It's super good. Yeah, we can link to that in the show notes. We have a PDF we use in our class. Um, So then he goes on to say that basically the concept that's commonly used uh, of a linear evolution of human societies is far too simple. He says, quote, "...quite independently, archaeological evidence suggests that in the highly seasonal environments of the last ice age, our remote ancestors were behaving in broadly similar ways, shifting back and forth between alternative social arrangements." permitting the rise of authoritarian structures during certain times of year on the proviso that they could not last on the understanding that no particular social order itself was ever fixed or immutable within the same population one could live sometimes in what looks like what looks from a distance like a band sometimes a tribe and sometimes a society with many of the features we now identify with states with such institutional flexibility comes the capacity to step outside the boundaries of any given social structure and reflect, to both make and unmake the political worlds we live in. If nothing else, that explains the princes and princesses of the Ice Age who appear to show up in magnificent isolation, like characters in some kind of fairy tale or costume drama. Maybe they were almost literally so. If they reigned at all, then perhaps it was like the kings and queens of Stonehenge, just for a season. Thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I. I mean, we can see it. I That's think where he other... gets to
0: like the oscillation, right?
1: Well, and I think other factors play. It's not just, of course, surplus. Again, for me as a historian, I'm not looking at this evidence. I'm looking at like again, indigenous societies. We see, we know that indigenous societies, upon contact with Europeans. Were actually because of the circumstances that 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 and the effects, the absolutely widespread negative effects from disease to warfare to uh, the, the the proselytization of missionaries and so on and so forth, that many of those groups eventually were coerced, not necessarily willingly, into having more coer- coercively powerful leadership themselves. I mean, the easiest example to draw on was like the Wampanoag, who were racked by diseases. Right before the English, the, the pilgrims landed, and then all of a sudden, um, who's left standing? Well, you've got a smaller group of people, but because of this contact situation with these pilgrims, Massasoit eventually rises to a position of leadership that he probably would not have had without this point of contact and the disaster of disease that struck just before. So I think one of those other things that, that, and this would, I guess, put me in a little bit of a, agreement with Graeber again, is that, that, that it's more than just agriculture that sometimes can lead humans into, um, into creating, like, again, hierarchy.
0: Okay, then he makes four final points. Uh, he says, we must stop referring to early Homo sapiens as primitive. It's likely they possess more knowledge of the dynamics of society and inequality than modern humans. So that's one. Love that. Okay. That's so good. Two, we must abandon the widely adopted theory that some early elites hoarded resources and began began to exploit everyone else. By the way, this is me writing notes, not quoting him. But I do want to quote this because this is your still main argument with him. He says, quote, If so, then the real question is not what are the origins of social inequality, but having lived so much of our history moving back and forth between different political systems, how did we get so stuck? All this is very far from the notion of prehistoric societies drifting blindly towards the institutional chains that bind them. It is also far from the dismal prophecies of Fukuyama, Diamond, Morris, and Scheidel, where any complex form of social organization necessary means tiny elites take charge of key resources and begin to trample everyone else underfoot. Most social science treats these grim prognostications as self-evident truths, but clearly they are baseless. So we might reasonably ask what other cherished truths must now be cast on the dust heap of history. What do you think about that?
1: I'm not entirely sure. I mean, he's now making these assumptions that because of the prior argument that the elite, whatever that elite is, that come in a post-agricultural society or a post... um, um, He says we're stuck, right? We've been stuck. Mm -hmm. And I do agree that we've been stuck. For, again, at minimum... Six thousand-ish years, right? We've been definitely been stuck. Whatever that means. Whatever happened six thousand years ago, what, if we want to call it a revolution, whatever, that's fine. That's whatever. We've been stuck. I don't know that he is necessarily negating that idea.
0: I think. So I read. this – I mean, I, I
1: think. I think when I when I hear you say it, maybe if I would be reading it right now, okay. I'd be looking at it differently. But when I hear you read it. I hear him searching for optimism that this is not a, that this is not just something natural, and that's why I enjoy this reading so much, and I know what he's trying to do here. But I guess I just don't see how that quote. I don't know. So what he's suggesting is that stuck.
0: the narrative for Jared Diamond and everyone else in theory and Rousseau's I'm not a, narrative yeah, I'm not is a that Diamond fan, but yeah. yeah, that the elites began to. Hoard the resources, the surplus, and exploit everyone. But he's saying, given his three examples above, that that's not at all what was happening when these, socii- these early humans were oscillating, to use his term, back and forth between these different structures, that it manifested itself in all kinds of different ways. So he says that we should be asking the question, not what's the origin of inequality, but how did we get stuck in the one social arrangement?
1: I will disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. Like, I, again, the hoarding is, is something different, and we know that the hoarding began around that time, at least in these, what, what we, the, the cliche for origin places of civilization in Egypt and Mesopotamia, China and, and, and India, right? We know that, right? Those are the four cliche places that, that, that in the traditional narrative that he's challenging, and I would agree with challenging this, that civilization began. We know that elite hoarded at that moment in time, but does that mean that that's because are we stuck because of that hoarding at that moment in time is this why we're stuck i think that's a big part of it and what we see again using examples that may or may not fit what he's trying to accomplish in these these earlier epics 40,000 20,000 you know years ago 10,000 years ago is that we see a lot of the leadership in many of these societies at least the ones that we've studied people were put in positions of power that were materially the what we would call in our modern language, the poorest of them. They were chosen to lead people into battle or to move or change migratory patterns or whatever it might be because they were seeing their their ability to make judgment was revealed by the fact that they tended to hoard the least. And so they thought they would naturally be the best people to follow because they had this we over me ethic.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Third point. We must reframe the significance or at least the once and for all narrative of the agricultural revolution. I don't want to read the long quote, but what do you think about that?
1: I think we need to change the language. I don't know that I am ready to completely abandon the idea that, again, whatever we want to call it, somewhere around the line, we began to do things on a much more massive scale, became much more sedentary, at least in certain areas, certain parts of the world. Not obviously. I cannot speak to the whole globe and that those areas have had a profound impact
0: on the way we do things now. Okay, let me read just half of this quote that I have here. He says, this is the same point. Quote, the first bombshell on our list concerns the origins and spread of agriculture. There is no longer any support for the view that it marked a major transition in human societies. In those parts of the world where animals and plants were first domesticated, there actually was no discernible switch from paleolithic forager to neolithic farmer the transition from living mainly on wild resources to a life based on food production typically took something in the order of 3,000 years. And that's um, why I would any... agree that
1: the word revolution is not necessary.
0: Okay. Quote, while agriculture allowed for the possibility of more unequal concentrations of wealth, in most cases this only began to happen millennia after its inception.
1: I don't know that I have a lot to add to that. Okay.
0: The problem is, like, even though we can use the words, like, millennia, as soon as you tell someone that agriculture led to inequality, they envision that happening in 10 seconds. I don't know what language, like, can be used to make it actually understandable.
1: Well, I don't know know that either, and that's why I'm trying to – I'm racking my brain trying to think of another way to phrase it. But, like I said, when we look at the material circumstances from that point on – I'm sorry. The evidence is clear that that the way societies are run today learned a lot by how people organized inequality in ancient Egypt and then in ancient Mesopotamia. And we know those, those idea, ideas then spread across both east and west, across the Mediterranean. Some found their way uh, up the Nile down into sub-Saharan Africa, and some found their way, of course, uh, a little bit west. But then we also know what was going on along the Indus and Ganges rivers, valleys in Southeast Asia. And then we know what was going on around the Yellow and Yangtze rivers. And, and those things clearly impacted the way those societies developed and then spread those ideas and ways of socially organizing because they were expansionist by nature in various ways.
0: Yeah, but that's not at all related to what he's talking about. By the time we get to your Egypt's example, we're way past what he's discussing.
1: Okay, that's what I'm saying. We, ha- we, we know that story. Yeah. Now, how did, I guess he's asking the question, how did Egypt become Egypt? Exactly. We're still, I mean, we're still going to be throwing darts at, at, at a dartboard here, right? These he, he admitted, right? These paleo- P- paleolithic pieces of evidence are patchy and spread apart by, spread apart by centuries at best, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's little things. I mean, using Egypt as, as an example, uh, we now know that the Sphinx is actually much older than the pyramids. We know, like so those are things that are interesting, and we're finding out more. But I think if we're going to make these grandiose assumptions about the birth of inequality, I think we have to wait for more research. The problem with that is. None of us want to do that because we're ready to get on to looking at how to get unstuck. And so is uh, David Graber here. So I guess what we have to think about in this project, and this discussion we're having and throughout these podcasts and the more research we do is what's the goal? Are we I mean, is our goal really to sit here and kind of wax eloquently about these semantics or take what we know, know that everything is much more nuanced than it was assumed to be and look at how we move forward from here that's tough because we want to do both. We mm-hmm. want to know more. We want to know, be able to make more concrete assertions about the development of humanity and human nature and stratification and inequality and the birth and how, when we moved from matrilineal to patriarchal societies in some places and didn't in other places. And We want to know more about that. Do we need to answer those questions, though, to establish what stateless societies would look like? And that's what we're going to have to explore more on.
0: I want to actually end the conversation today with that question, so I'm going to come back to that. His fourth point is there is no one-size-fits-all theory to explain early societies. He says, quote, Another bombshell, civilization does not come as a package. The world's first cities did not just emerge in a handful of locations together with systems of centralized government and bureaucratic control. There is mounting evidence that the first cities were organized on self-consciously egalitarian lines. Municipal councils retaining significant autonomy from central government. In the first two cases, cities with sophisticated civic infrastructures flourished over half a millennium with no trace of royal burials or monuments, no standing armies or other means of large-scale coercion, nor any hint of direct bureaucratic control over most citizens' lives. Then I love this quote. Jared Diamond, notwithstanding, there is absolutely no evidence that top-down structures of rule are necessarily consequence of large-scale organization. Walter Scheidel, notwithstanding, it's simply not true that ruling classes once established, cannot be gotten rid of except by general catastrophe. And then he provides an example of that. What do you think about that one?
1: I mean, I like the idea. Like I said, I don't know. I brought it up earlier. I think sometimes when we look at some of these these sites and we're digging into these sites, we're looking at what we want to see rather than what might be there. Again, I think one of his favorite examples where there's not clear hierarchy based on a city, and a clearly a large city, Mohenjo-Daro, right, in current-day Pakistan, Yes, there is clear, awesome organization. That is a very advanced what we would call quote unquote civilization right there's there's plumbing and there's standardized brick sizes and there's all these wonderful things there. I don't know that there's hierarchy. I don't know what that means to the argument that he's making though does that it does that imply then that something of mohenjo-daro size could be more egalitarian? Was there inequity there? Was there not inequality there? To the best of my knowledge, and maybe one of our listeners will correct me on this if, if, if you like, but to the best of my knowledge, we've still not even deciphered the writing we found at Mohenjo-Daro to really understand what that society uh, looks like. To the best of my knowledge, again, I have not done any research on this in eight, nine years at this point, but I don't know that we have. Maybe that would help, uh, help us understand. Was that society as, quote-unquote, organized, advanced, and egalitarian as we think it might be, or are, is there something that's being hidden by the fact that we can't understand what they were actually doing there?
0: I, mean, I'm sure I, I don't know what the
1: second example is that he he brought up, though. You said there was two. Cities. That, that, that prove uh, that people can organize, come together, create surplus, and not have
0: hierarchy. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. Well. No. Anyways. I think there's probably a lot of discussion we can have on the invention of writing and the argument that it's a result of inequality, stratification, et cetera. But that's a I whole don't other think there's thing. any
1: discussion. I think it's a yeah. given
0: that writing is part of
1: inequity. What you're doing is seeking to create permanence for society as it exists, to not oscillate, to not be able to, to be. Uh, even when we talk about the ethically constituted story to not be able to be malleable. We want we want this to be the way it is and we're gonna write it. We're gonna carve it into stone and we're gonna try and at least assume make it as permanent as possible because I like shit the way it is. And obviously we know in these ancient societies it's the it's it's either the kings or the princes or the rulers or the emperors administering these writings. They're not doing it themselves. They of course hire people mm-hmm. to do this and or make people do it, right? Scribes and so on and so forth. But yes, yes, so I would agree one hundred percent that writing is definitely post inequality.
0: Okay. Uh, he has one. This is the last big quote I'm going to read, just because it relates to activism, which I kind of like. He throws that in there. He says, "The pieces are, are all there to create an entirely different world history. From the most part, for the most part, we're just too blinded by our prejudices to see implications. For instance, almost everyone nowadays insists that participatory democracy or social equality can work in a small community or activist group." but cannot possibly scale up to anything like a city, a region, or a nation-state. But the evidence before our eyes, if we choose to look at it, suggests the opposite. Egalitarian cities, even regional confederacies, are historically quite commonplace. Egalitarian families and households are not. Once the historical verdict is in, we will see that the most painful loss of human freedoms began at the small scale, the level of gender relations, age groups, and domestic servitude, the kind of relationships that contain at once the greatest intimacy and the deepest forms of structural violence. If we really want to understand how it first became acceptable for some to turn wealth into power and for others to end up being told their needs and lives don't count, it is here that we should look. Here, too, we predict is where the most difficult work of creating a free society will have to take place.
1: I like that. I think that's a good quote. I think it ends, you know, I think it kind of ends his argument um, and wraps it up and ties it up with a neat little bow. Well, Eyeing what we should be looking at, um, and I do agree with actually a good portion of it. Right, that that I would, and I made an allusion to it earlier. That uh, that I do think that that patriarchy predates right this this more agriculture. I do think that's one of the first inequities that really comes along. So, and we both agree on that one, and mm-hmm. that's kind of how we approach it in the classes. That patriarchy, patriarchy, and how that that in in family violence at the small scale um, predates what. Or maybe even previews, I should say, what is to come
0: on larger scales. Um, I, no, I don't. I disagree because we both in the classroom use the narrative that surplus came first and then patriarchal societies were born. I don't think we ever that grounded surplus. it as like
1: an absolute. I really don't. In fact, it, well, I don't know if the listeners care, but I think that's why we organize it that way, and that's why I have you do gender stratification before
0: I do the, the agricultural pyramid junk. I mean, I guess when I pre- present the three different ones and go into the its angles, the Marxist perspective of private property being the origin of gender stratification. I mean, that's very clearly property comes first, surplus comes first. Does
1: property mean surplus? That's a whole different podcast. We don't even need to. Yeah, that's <laughs> again. Now we're getting kind of bogged down in the stuff. Anyway, yeah. So I like what he's trying to present here. Um, that we need to be looking at all of the different layers of inequity and stratification that occurred either pre-agriculture or not even related to surplus or something along those lines i think that's i think that might be a valuable exercise
0: okay last quote because this is optimistic this is the last quote from gray he doesn't even
1: use hold on like here he says cities where we see like more egalitarian cities with participatory democracy Mm -hmm. porto alegre would be like a great example right the brazilian city or no he doesn't think that's a good example i don't know is it in there
0: I don't know if that's fully participatory democracy. They have participatory, like, budgeting and stuff, but is it really?
1: Yeah, I mean, but it's a step along the way that is a step so far removed that
0: it would never occur in the U.K. or the U.S., right? So yeah, like, even sure. that
1: is something that blows people's minds, that, that this mm. really good-sized town—it's uh, not even a town. It's a full-blown city, in Brazil is pulling up off at least participatory, participatory democracy in terms of its budget— and maybe a few other things, and we'd have to do a little bit more yeah. research and get back into it, because it's been a while since I've,
0: I've been checking it out. But yeah. So he says, quote, The questions we are dealing with are so enormous and the issues so important that it will take years of research and debate to even begin understanding the full implications. But on one thing we insist. Abandoning the story of a fall from primordial innocence does not mean abandoning dreams of human emancipation. That is, of a society where no one can turn their rights and property into a means of enslaving others, and where no one can be told their lives and needs don't matter. To the contrary, human history becomes a far more interesting place, containing many more hopeful moments than we've been led to imagine, once we learn to throw off our conceptual shackles and perceive what's really there. So, yeah, I mean, we say it in the classroom. I agree with
1: him, even though I don't agree with everything he says. Like, when I read this, it forced me to change at least some of the language I was using. Um, And I think it's important for us to never stop questioning, especially what we think is assumed knowledge. So uh, 100% lockstep agreement, especially when that challenging, in theory, what we're hoping for, leads to new worldviews, new ideas, innovations in how we as humans begin to do things, and innovations outside of what we think are innovations, the iPhone X from the iPhone X1 or whatever it is. Like I, Now I sound like a Luddite, but whatever. Those aren't real innovations, not the innovations we're talking about.
0: So I want to present again, if Rousseau's hypothesis is that inequality is a result of agriculture and the resulting surplus, then to falsify that, we only have to present one example of inequality happening prior to the agricultural revolution. Do you think that Graber does that?
1: If we want to pick on the special member when we were talking about the Graves, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess I I suppose he does that. But again, I don't know that Rousseau's, again, like any quote-unquote science, I hate to use that word because we're throwing it around very loosely at this moment in time. We learn Rousseau was writing in the 18th century, and then the quotes I read come from the 19th century, and then we have Graeber here in the 21st century I don't know that anyone takes Rousseau lockstep, that it's specifically agriculture. We've slowly been making improvements to this thesis over time. I don't know that we fully have deconstructed that yet or challenged it or made it. I don't know that we fully falsified it yet. Does that example of the graves fully falsify Rousseau's more macro sense of understanding of how human humanity got to where it was. I actually don't know that it does. I think Graeber presents possibilities for something else, and I think that's his goal here. But I don't know if he, that he challenges the general trajectory of inequality stemming heavily, maybe not entirely, but heavily from this period of time. But he's
0: suggesting it's not just him, that for decades agriculture or anthropology and archaeology has presented evidence that go, flies in the face of Rousseau's hypothesis and that the discourse continues to ignore it. And discount it. But then, but
1: again, now we're deconstructing just for the sake of deconstruction to make to make it where nothing means anything anymore. What we do know is, in these places, right, their inequality it may not have begun, but it clearly manifested itself in its most blatant, obvious, and stratified
0: ways. And from these places, it spread quickly. We know that that is a thing. But what's that has zero relevance in answering our original question. What is the origin of social inequality? The fact that in the Fertile Crescent we see these examples or whatever, that means nothing for our first No, Well, I think it question.
1: does, because if we're ever going to deconstruct inequality, we need to see it manifested in all these various forms, and that's the only way we're going to be able to challenge it. I mean, looking for its origins is fine, I guess. I... It, but because some. But of, that's nonsense.
0: Okay, it's nonsense if we have to say the only evidence that really matters is historical evidence where we, we can actually see what they wrote and analyze what their society was like. Because by the time we get there, the societies, they're full fledged socialized. Evidence. I
1: didn't say historical evidence. But if we, that's what I'm saying, if we end up finding more archaeological or anthropological evidence of where inequality started before this time period, that would be great. And that but Graeber says helpful. it's there,
0: he said it already exists. And he provides examples in his writing. He he does provide these four examples. But are these examples? I mean, how much evidence do you need? What is the level when you're like, okay, now I fully admit that there is no question.
1: I'm not saying that the evidence is irrelevant. I already said, like, his Inuit example was spectacular. And it flies directly in the face of some of what we have been talking about or teaching or viewing the world. I tend to gravitate towards... God, I'm not... I hate being a follower. In fact, that's the opposite of what I like to be. But in this case, I tend to gravitate more towards, like, there's more evidence here right now. And what we're trying to accomplish is a, at least when we teach this class, is a deconstruction of state. That's what we're trying to do. How far down this rabbit hole do we need to go to deconstruct state? What role does human nature really, I mean, human nature definitely figures in. Very important. Root of inequality definitely figures in. How far down that rabbit hole do we need to dive to begin to discuss deconstruction of states, especially when we have states to study their construction and their deconstruction?
0: So I think I'll probably – I might even go farther than you on this. I actually think it's a complete waste of time. I think if our goal is to start where we are now in modern, advanced industrial society, and our goal is to deconstruct that and move to a place where the state doesn't exist – That human nature is completely irrelevant, and the origins of inequality decades ago is completely irrelevant. I think it is. Unless we make the conclusion that the origins, without a doubt, prove to us that human beings by nature are so evil that they require a coercive state apparatus to control and regulate their behaviors. And I think unequivocally we can say that that's not the case.
1: No, none of us believe that human... Human beings are inherently bad. That is the only outcome that There's would... no original sin. There's no... Yeah, there's... That is not a thing, right? Mm-hmm. We must not abandon this fundamental pr- principle, that man is a reasonable and moral being before he has penned up in this or that language, a member of this or that race, or a participant in this or that culture. I wish I could take credit for that, but that is not me. That is, again, Ernest Renan in 1882 that, that, that made that statement.
0: So the only way that a stateless society in any... Future manifestation is impossible if human beings are just so evil that a state is required to regulate their behavior. And I don't – I mean there are people that have that opinion, but it certainly isn't the two of us and Graeber pro- probably, right? Like I don't, I don't believe think it, that.
1: I, I don't think it's Rousseau. I don't think it's Renan. I don't think it's a, no, a lot No, it's of definitely not Rousseau. Think. Hobbes. Um, it's Hobbes. Hobbes is definitely that way. Yeah. Um, we're going to bring in a little, at some point in the semester for sure, a little little Tommy Payne there. And um, while I love Thomas Paine as a revolutionary thinker, he does argue clearly in common sense that some form of governance is necessary, right? That's his point that, that I forget the exact quote right now mm-hmm. off the top of my head, but regarding wickedness, our natural wickedness or something along those lines in the first section. So he does require some sort of state. He doesn't want a big one, but he wants state. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, a lot of these people do operate under the idea that there is some need, some form of us to control us from our vice, our vices. So, and I don't agree with that. Okay. I mean, it's like we talk about in class, right? Like across all of the societies we study or talk about, whether it's in sociology, whether it's in history, neither of us are anthropologists or archaeologists, but across all these societies, there seems to be some general quote-unquote values, mores, ethics morals that that tend to cross a lot of lines i do not want to say every one of them but a lot of them right how is that a thing right How is that a thing across all these societies? People naturally in whatever a band or whatever would not want to murder other members of their band for whatever reason, whether it was the story that told them, whether it was God that told them, or whether it was merely an evolutionary imperative that the more people I murder, the less my gene pool is diversified and that limits my options for procreating. Whatever it was, those things were innate. Those were natural laws. So I think those were enough or are enough.
0: We, our opinions differ significantly on very few topics but that is one of them i don't actually believe in full-blown like moral relativism but i tend to lean that way and you absolutely don't yeah we
1: don't I, I, i don't i'm not a moral relativist i mean i can see the argument i can see how it can be manipulated and um and and changed right so what's the easiest example of somebody that was willing to just do whatever okay yeah, it's the everybody's favorite example. Nazi Germany, right? The bad the preeminent historical bad guys, which actually I even get tired of, but whatever. Regardless, they are. They are bad guys. But yes, in Germany, you would be taught at that time it is not cool to kill fellow Germans. However, that does not mean killing itself is immoral, clearly, because you had no issue as an SS officer doing so to Poles or to the Jewish population or to gypsies or to whoever else. Russians, we can do, the list actually goes, goes on pretty extensively. So I guess in that ex- instance, that is a moral relativism and a flexibility where this people not worth killing, this people killing, and thus killing in general. The general topic is, where is it? Where do we stand on that? Well,
0: yeah, but how can you believe that but not be a moral relativist? I'm not saying I'm not – I'm in a little bit of a conundrum here.
1: <laughs> because I do genuinely believe – and this is where I'll, I'll kind of finish up on this. I do genuinely believe that 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 moral relativity is manufactured. I believe – and this is where I guess I – naturally I don't think we're that way. So I think it takes a whole lot of socialization and conditioning, and it is a whole lot. I'm talking at this point, again, our famous six to 10,000 years or whatever, for people to get to be willingly able to do that. For a conquistador to willingly be able to sail across the sea, kiss his wife and kids goodbye, wherever they were, Toledo, uh, Madrid, whatever, and then all of a sudden, a couple of months later, be doing awful things to the Taino in the Caribbean, that took a lot of conditioning, not just in that individual, but in that society. To make that okay. But if you took that person and put them anywhere else in the world, conditioned in a different way, at a different time, they would not commit those actions. That killing in general would be wrong. So I guess what I'm saying is naturally we don't want to do those things. We have to be coerced or conditioned or taught to want to do those things. Okay. That's a whole other episode. I
0: think we have to be. Okay. I disagree. Close us out here. So... At the very least, we can continue our investigation and to stateless societies because we haven't concluded that humans are so evil naturally that they require a state to regulate their behaviors, right? I mean, we can continue. I intentionally, in these two episodes, did not go into anarchist philosophers and their thoughts on human nature because we'll be doing that as we go along and investigate each of them individually. Because obviously, they have thoughts on human nature uh, as well and what that means and. It's obviously very clear which side they land on in their theories. Um, one thing that has come up here though, that I think you and I need to investigate ourselves and whether we do that in an episode or just offline is whether our goal is actually stateless society or if it's something else. Because that's, that's, that's crucial, I think. My assumption is that if we deconstruct the state, that egalitarianism will, be possible and exist and manifest itself i have no desire to deconstruct the state if that's not the, the what happens like if i'm if i believe hobbes hypothesis i have zero desire to deconstruct the state if it's just going to end in warfare where we all kill each other the negative use of the term anarchy right that's not what i'm after where i'm after equality and that's what that's why i want to investigate the deconstruction of the state and that because it will result in the deconstruction of hierarchy and coercion.
1: Well, it, again, as we go through this, this thought exercise via a podcast, apparently publicly, I mean, based on what we just discussed, the state is not the sole creator of inequality, whether that is in ancient times or now. It is not the sole reason inequality exists. It's the bit, I, I would argue, it's the most important and largest manifestation, but it's not the sole
0: I think that the and you would have to systemic inequality requires the state. Capitalism requires the state. Yes, et cetera. Yes. So is our assumption that if we deconstruct the state, that all of those things will also cease to exist?
1: But to but to hope that happens in a peaceful manner—that's optimistic.
0: That's a different question altogether. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Once you once you. I mean, again, using my conquistador example, I just get, regarding why he was okay—not killing Spaniards, but okay killing Taíno. Um, it's the same thing here, right? Like, there you would have to also, along with deconstruction of a state, also deprogram people. They would have to be deprogrammed
0: mm-hmm.
1: and reprogrammed in another way. Um, and, you, and how do you reprogram somebody without creating another state? And there we have like the—that's the, the socialist conundrum, right there. One hundred percent. So yeah, I mean those are
0: the two big questions, right? How do you reprogram, deprogram, and reprogram someone without being coercive? And we
1: and we must stress this to the audience: we don't want to be the reprogrammers. We don't want reprogramming in some sort of like I don't know Borg like Star Trek thing. Like that's that that's not the idea. But allow them to somehow teach them how to reprogram themselves. That's the idea: is individual autonomy. Mm -hmm. And once you start deciding how these people are going to reprogrammed. You're 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 a shitter. You're then the revolutionary vanguard. You're the next whoever pick pick dictator X, right? You're that next person. That's the last thing you would want. Well, last
0: thing we would want. I don't know. I mean, other people might want that, but no, they do for sure. I think. Yeah. But that's the question: is how do we get to that point? Yeah, yeah. And it, how does it happen nonviolently? Right. Hmm. Close this out. All right. So we'll in there. We'll pick up those questions obviously throughout this investigation. Um, you can get the show notes to this episode and find other episodes at revolution If you want to reach out to us, you can email us at hello at revolution Uh, we will see you guys next time.